0: Well, good day to all of you, and it's good to be here. Uh, and we look forward, isn't it? We look forward to September, and hopefully, by God's grace, we are able to see people face to face, and I won't be preaching, and the music team will not be singing to an empty hall. And so it's also interesting, Pastor Kenneth highlighted that he got a two shorter pastors to be leading today. Well, let's, let me pray, and as we go to the Lord, uh, and commit to the Lord uh, today's sermon. Dear God, I want to thank you for this evening that you have brought us together to serve you in different ways and most importantly to come and worship you and to hear your word so help us O Lord. help me as i preach your word that i'll preach clearly help us as hearers of your word that may your word move our hearts to obedience in jesus name we pray amen well we have come to the last two chapters of one peter so, 1 Peter is so rich in God's truth, and it's written for the reader to have a God-centered perspective to their suffering. The call to cling on to the living hope, to look forward to the future glory, and to persevere in the midst of their suffering for Christ permeates the whole letter. 1 Peter continues to speak to us today. Why? Because God's people continue to suffer for their obedience. And we will continue to do so until our Lord returns as King. You do not have to look far to catch a glimpse of the plight of Christian suffering for Christ. Organizations like Open Doors, Barnabas Fund, broadcast their stories of many suffering brothers and sisters in Christ through different social media platforms. Pray we must for these brothers and sisters in Christ. So when I was studying at All Nations Christian College in the UK in 2001, I met a college mate whom I refer to as A in this story. His testimony has inspired and left a very deep impression in my heart. See, we were in the same college chores group. Yes, we do chores and it's part of our mission training. And we were responsible for the washing and the cleaning of the common toilets in the college. So back to A, A's father is the head of a religious center in his town. He was sent to a foreign country to be trained to take over the father's role as head of the religious center. And while he was there, he met a missionary couple. And by God's grace, he believed and gave his life to our Lord Jesus Christ. So, However, his conversion was seen as a deep betrayer to the family and to the community he came from. And what the father did, the father actually sent someone to kill him. A was deeply shaken and saddened. And after that failed attempt, this missionary couple arranged for him to be sent away to stay with a Christian family in Europe. He did not dare to contact his family, but he missed them very, very much. After many years has passed, hoping that his family has forgiven him, A decided to go back. To visit, hopeful and excited, he took a taxi from the the airport to his home. As he knocked on the door, the first sight as the door opens was his father coming to him with a knife. He was stunned for a moment, but for some unknown reason, the taxi driver did not drive off. What he did was, when he saw A was in danger, he quickly pulled him back into the taxi, and drove off. A knew that morning, that day, that God has intervened. See, my friend knew in his heart that God has protected him. I would never known this pain that my friend A has to suffer because he is always that jovial, happy person. It was a very costly discipleship for him. It did not just cut him off from his family. Can you imagine your family issuing a death sentence on you just because he has called Christ his Lord? A is still hopeful that one day, one day he'll be reconciled with his family and that his family will come to know the Lord Jesus by themselves. See, my friend's experience is a living example of 1 Peter chapter 4. Obedience to Christ will bring suffering. But we can rejoice because our salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. And we have a future glory to look forward to when Christ returns. So let us dive, dive straight into the text today. Read with me, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. You can actually refer to the slides, the verse in front of your screen or your open Bible. Verse 1, read, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, Arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. What attitude of Jesus did Peter want the exile to be armed with? Reflecting back on Jesus' life, one of the most anguished moments that Jesus had experienced would be, would possibly be at the the evening at the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knew the pain, Jesus knew the the suffering that he would be enduring. Yet, he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Instead of backing off, he leaned in and he obeyed God 100%. Peter is urging the exile to lean in, to obey, even when their obedience will lead to suffering. The call was for them not to back off from doing God's will, but to pray Not my will, but yours be done. Let us continue with the second half of verse 1. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Is Peter Peter saying that those who have chosen to suffer for Christ, they are sinless? They they have been perfected? Not so. The answer is no. Peter knew it full well. Because he was a sinner saved by grace, and remained so till he saw Jesus face to face. So what then does this verse mean? It means and anyone who suffered for Christ has crossed from the realm of darkness and stepped into God's wonderful lights. Having stepped into the light, this person, by God's grace, has turned his or her back to sin. And I think verse 2 will help us clearer. In verse 2, as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. The person who chose to obey God and suffer as a result has made a choice to live not for evil human desires, but to live to do the will of God. Living in the light under Christ exposes our sin, And when our sins are exposed, where does that lead us? It leads one who believes in Christ to repent. It leads us to turn our backs on our sin. And so the person under Christ obeys, will suffer, and as a result, is done with sin. So I think this is what Peter is trying to say when he wrote what he wrote in verse 1. Continue with me to verse 3 and 4. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Verse 4, They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. Peter drew a very sharp contrast between their past life before Christ, which is same-same as any of their unbelieving neighbors to their new life in christ and so what does the old life look like indulging in sin sinful pleasures were the norm everyone was doing it but in the new identity in christ they are not to continue to indulge themselves pursuing self pleasures as norm they are to turn their back to debauchery to lust to drunkenness to orgies Carousing, detestable idolatry, and such. This turning away will cause their non believing neighbors, their families, their friends, to label them as strange. Have you been labeled as strange before? Strange means you're doing something out of the ordinary. And some would even heap abuse at them. One commentator helpfully summed, this up, summed up this with these words. When believers endure suffering for the sake of Christ, they show that their purpose in life is not live for their own pleasures, but according to the will and for His glory. When believers endure suffering for the sake of Christ, they know that they do so as a child of God. And believers suffer not because God wants His children to suffer. We suffer because we chose to obey God instead of pursuing our earthly pleasures. Our obedience put us out of sync with the pursuit of earthly pleasures. See, I was chatting with one of my pastor's friends in Australia. He shared with me that it is the norm for youth to lose their virginity at a very young age, or at least it is made to feel that it is norm. For Christian youth to stand firm on God's word and not to go down, go with the flow, is an uphill task. They sometimes, or most of the time, get laughed at and they are made to feel embarrassed because they are still a virgin. Peter, in verse 5 and 6, assure the exile and assure us that they are abused. They are thinking that we are strange Will be short lived and God will vindicate. See, your DG may have spent some time trying to understand these two verses. Let me unpack this briefly to help us in our understanding. So let us look at verse 5. For they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to the human standards in regards to the body living, live according to God in regards to the Spirit. Verse 5 is very clear. Jesus will judge the living and the dead, meaning everyone will be judged when Christ comes again. Death will not exempt anyone from that final judgment. So 5 is clear. Let's go to verse 6. The key to understand verse 6, I would say focuses on these two phrases. You can see in the slides, was preached, and in NIV translation, who are now dead. So the tenses are important. So verse 6a is about the gospel being preached to the, to the people who was alive and received the gospel, but now at this point of Peter's writing, they were dead. So verse 6b could mean, two, 6a could mean two things. It could mean that those who believed died like anybody else. In the eyes of the non-believers, Same, same what? No difference. You die, you believe you die. I don't believe and I die. Did the believers believe and suffer in vain? Because they died like anybody else. It could also mean that we are condemned to death because of sin. For the believers, like the non-believers, we all face this bodily judgment of physical death. No one escapes that. However, the key is not in this verse, this portion itself. The key is in the second part of that verse. However, what is not sin is what happened after death. Death does not end it all. Death is the door between the perishable, this world, and the imperishable, the eternity with God. And verse 6 be guarantee a future glory. Believers will live in eternity with God. Jesus' resurrection is a guarantor, that seal for this eternal life. So I hope this brings clarity to your verse 5 and verse 6. So armed with this living hope of future glory, how would our obedience look like? Well, let me address the youth and the children. In school, what does it mean for you to obey God? Not to go in the flow and make fun of teachers that you do not like? Or join in and ostracize or marginalize a classmate who you deem as weird or strange? Or to behave in a way that causes you to disobey God? Or even to be ashamed to call yourself a Christian? What about for those who are working at our workplace? What does it mean for us to obey God and not to give in to sin? Are you tempted to join in the office gossip, talk about, the, talk about your bosses? Are you part of that so that you can be part of the inner circle? Or put someone down in order to be recognized? These lists are not exhaustive. This list is not exhaustive. I'm sure you can think of ways in your own office, in your own school, that you do things that is not obedient to God. I met a Burmese pastor in Myanmar when I had a chance to travel to Myanmar. Uh, well, he felt called to move from pastoring a city church stable to be an evangelist in a village with no Christian presence. He faced many challenges, and one of the challenges was housing. No one in the village was willing to rent out their place to him after knowing that he is a Christian. And by God's grace, he found one small little place, but life was not smooth sailing. Someone took his cow. See, one day, his cow wandered into the field of his neighbour. His neighbour refused to return the cow to him. Instead, claimed that the cow was his. You know, cow in Myanmar is not cheap. The folks around him knew that wasn't true, that the count didn't belong to this man, but belonged to this pastor. But they all kept quiet because he is a Christian. He prayed, and he asked people to pray for him. And that gave him strength to persevere instead of packing up, instead of backing off. It helps him to lean in and to do the will of God. He continued to do good, repaying evil with good. They actually reduced the hostility to against him. People began to see, hey, this guy is quite a nice guy. He's a Christian, but he's a kind guy. I like him. Similarly, Peter wrote to the exile to live out their faith in very practical ways so that people around them would see Christ through them. And that brings us to chapter 4, verse 7 to 11. And in 7 to 11, Peter gave us four practical ways. This list is not exhaustive. It it should challenge our obedience to God just as it challenged the exile during Peter's time. So verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Prayer is the key to persevere in their suffering. That should not surprise us that Peter's first stop is prayer. Jesus prayed at all times, and at the moment of his anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed. So when we pray in the midst of our suffering, we are trusting God that God knows, God cares, and God is in control the apostle themselves prayed without ceasing, holding on to this truth. We too can do likewise. Peter exhort the exile to be clear-minded, or in ESV, sober-minded, and self-control so that they can pray. You may ask that how does sober-mindedness and self-control help in prayer? People who are drunk, don't think straight. And they are unable to make sound assessment of their surroundings. They lose their balance and their senses are numbed. Hans' drunk driving is a very reckless behaviour because the car is driven by someone who has no control of the car. And that will result in a lot of harm. In contrast, a sober-minded person has good optics of the surrounding, and has the ability to make sound decision that does not bring themselves harm. A sober-minded person is keenly aware of the situation and able to discern God's will correctly. Is able to exercise self-control to act according to God's will for themselves and even for others. But most importantly, a self a, a self-control and a sober-minded person is fully aware of his or her need for help. And when you are aware of your need for help, you seek help. So for a Christian, you go down on your knees to pray. I think that's how Peter connect that two together. Peter connect us with God and calling us to pray in our times of needs. As you go on, how does that, that vertical relationship with, with God, that we have with God, manifest in the horizontal relationship with people? So Peter's practical way covers both vertical relationship and also the horizontal relationship. So in verse 8, read with me together, if you have at home or wherever you are, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Love is a visible manifestation of our hearts. Why? 1 Peter 1 verse 22, it reads, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter began with love in chapter 1. As he come to the end of his letter, he still continues the same theme of love. It's so important, isn't it? for love to be the glue in any Christian community. God is love, and everything about Him is about His love for His creation. In the boys' brigade and the girls' brigade, and the that you saw earlier on, the student hearts are worn not by programs, but by the love of the officers, the love shown, showered upon them by the officers. How the officers are able to work together in love? Speak volume. If you know, they keep asking ourselves, and me as a chaplain, I keep asking my officers, do we serve together in love? Because this is what the teachers, the students, see. Thus, I'm always very encouraged by my fellow captains and officers who constantly display their Christian love in their service. So when we love each other deeply, Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins the story that immediately came to my mind as I was reading this and preparing this was Jesus' conversation with Peter. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 and 22. Some of you may even can tell me offhand the reading. Verse 21, Then Peter came out and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times, Peter asked. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times but 77 times. I believe that this conversation between Jesus and himself would be the reference point when he wrote these words, that love covers a multitude of sins. God's people must readily forgive others. It's definitely not about condoning sin. Jesus never condoned the sin of the people. He called them to repentance. Repentance but he never redrew his love for them. So think Peter is saying, look to Christ who forgives us unconditionally so that you can say these words, I forgive you. I forgive you. Not an easy three words to say. Easy to hear or easy to, you want to hear that I'm sorry, but very hard for you to say I forgive you. But remember Christ, because that's what God said to us. I forgive you, Joe. So let us love each other deeply. And by our love, the people around us will know that we are Jesus' disciples. So the next practical way to live out their faith and our faith is found in verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Showing hospitality then would mean welcoming traveling brothers and sisters in Christ into their homes, opening up their place for fellowship and teaching of the local believers. See, this form of hospitality would be costly, not in terms of money and dollars, dollars and cents. Neighbors would hear and see other believers coming in and out of their home. And what does that mean? People would know: hey, they are Christians, they are believers. And they live in a hostile time, isn't it? Of being persecuted. Showing hospitality will require them to love God, love the people deeply, and to profess their faith publicly. It's not easy, it's not hard for us to profess our faith publicly. Even so, when you're not persecuted even in Singapore, sometimes it's very hard for you to say that I'm a Christian. Have you had this opportunity when you're talking to somebody? and then you you want to say that I'm Christian, but you don't dare to, you don't want to. Can you imagine how hard it is for them to profess publicly their faith? It could invite persecution. And Peter called them in that context to extend hospitality without grumbling. See, our immediate context would be us opening up our place for discipleship group, Opening up one's place for Bible study, for Christian fellowship, can be a hassle, isn't it? Those of us who have opened up, you know, there's clearing up to do before, because you want to make your place look nice and clean, and after, because you have the play host, and you've got to engage your DG mates, and you've got to clear it up after everybody has gone home. For some, opening up your place means an invasion of your privacy. But with COVID, in order to continue that physical fellowship, you can only gather in small groups at homes. This means that each DG will need more homes. I'm thankful to hear through my at least DG group that some of the DGs are doing that. People are opening up their place to meet. But I also pray that there are some who struggle, some DGs who struggle to find homes, one, two, not many, but one, even one or two, to be willing to open up for People to come. See, when you are tired from a day work, on having to sort out your children, home-based learning, HBL, or your own work from home, WFH, you feel too tired for DG. Well, if you are not hosting, hey, you pick up your phone, and that's what you do. The slides. Sorry folks, long day Zooming. I'll give DG a miss tonight. Have fun. Enjoy your study. Love. You cannot do so, isn't it? You cannot do that when you are hosting. If you get, you have to get the place ready for what? For who? For five DG folks. At least now it's five. Right? You need to set up the camera and the microphone for the Zoom. And it's still a bit difficult even if you follow the the Dummies Guide by Pastor Joe is still not easy. Hosting DG is, not, is a lot of work as compared to you just clicking on your computer, sitting in the comfort of your home, Zooming in, or going to somebody's places instead of opening up your place. But I want to encourage you, meeting physically and pray for one another in person cannot replace Zoom is so, so precious and heartwarming to be able to sit and pray with someone. So can I show, can I show hospitality without grumbling? The fourth practical way is serving. Verse 10, each one should, should use whatever gift he receives to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things, God will be praised through Jesus Christ. One other resource to keep the Christian community going in the midst of suffering would be the stewardship of spiritual gifts. Peter continued to urge the exile to be other person-centered by exercising spiritual gifts to build up and edify God's people. God continued to pour forth His grace in various forms to enable the believers to persevere in their suffering. See, believers serving one another in the midst of suffering is a very beautiful expression of love. The unity, the well-being of God's people bear a very powerful weakness to, their hostile, to the hostile community that they were in he told the exam, show God's grace by God's strength so that God may be praised through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, how are we pouring out God's grace in our situation? Well, churches, ARPC has virtually gone gone virtually virtual. Virtual church lacks the togetherness. I treasure this time every Saturday where a group of us. Serve together in person to stream the service. I experienced God's grace through my brother and sisters here. See, the service leaders still make effort to prayerfully lead the service. The preacher worked through the Bible text diligently so as to speak God's word and encourage every one of us, even by preaching to an empty hall. The music team practices for at least two hours, if you do not know, and sing their hearts out to an empty hall, but they know that people are listening and they are leading people to praise God. But last but not least, the tech team who work tirelessly to make sure all systems go to provide a smooth streaming so that each one of us can worship God and listen to his word uninterrupted. See, the beauty of God's grace will be lost if, you're done, if all these are done in silo In our own homes, you still get done, but the beauty will be lost. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us pray and and eagerly look forward to the resumption of the physical service when, by God's grace, September third and fourth. And I look forward, I look forward to seeing you in Adam or in Bishan, and to experience life together, and to preach not to empty hall, but to bodies. See, apart from the main service, our children church teacher faithfully teaches our children every week via Zoom. Our basic leaders continue to journey with the youth placed under their care. I know because my daughter is one of the basic youth. The DG leaders continue to work hard to prepare to lead in the Bible study. And the list goes on. Although we are not able to meet in person, I'm so encouraged and thankful that as a church, we have not stopped exercising the spiritual gift to edify the wider church. Can you imagine how much better, how much better it is if we can do all this together in person? So my Tulia, let us continue to serve one another, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So I think verse 11 ends very aptly with these beautiful words. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Yes, our obedience is for the glory of God, who is forever praised. Peter concludes this section on suffering, started in 3 verse 8 and then end in chapter 4, by turning the exiles' attention to three truths, three truths that will sustain them to persevere in their persecution. The first truth called them not to see their suffering as strange, but instead rejoice. Verse 12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Next verse. But rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Peter used the same word, strange, as in verse 4. The non-believers will find it strange when the believers do not partake in their sin. And here, Peter reframed that word strange to describe their suffering. Suffering would seem strange to the believers, but it should not be. Believers should expect to suffer for Christ. Peter, having suffered for Christ, knew this truth very personally. And just as he is able to rejoice that he participated in the suffering of Christ, Peter is calling the exile. To rejoice because they participate in the suffering of Christ. And there will be a greater joy, a greater rejoicing when our Lord Jesus Christ is fully revealed. And so we should not find it strange. But besides not finding it strange, Peter is telling them, do not be ashamed. And that is the second truth: do not be ashamed. In verse 16, However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Generally, most people will associate suffering with disobedience and not obedience to God. Thus, Peter wanted the exile to reframe their understanding of suffering. Peter affirmed that doing wrong, being a criminal, murdering, will definitely bring suffering. And that suffering as a result of sin is well deserved. And we must be ashamed of those suffering. However, the suffering that the exile were going through is not the due to sin. The suffering because of their obedience to God. And that suffering, Peter says, will bring joy and will lead to the praise of God. They must not be ashamed. So back to my friend A, surrendering his life to God created a deep gulf in his family relationship. Turning to God caused his family to turn their backs on him. But A did not regret his decision. He expected it. And he said that he had done the same thing if he has remained in his faith if his son had turned to Christianity. He would hunt him down, kill him, because the son has brought shame to the family. But thanks be to God, he's now safe, redeemed, a new person. And therefore, as a new person, as a redeemed person, he's able to rejoice because he found true freedom, true freedom in Christ and Christ alone. And the suffering of Christ and other Christians encourages him to press on and not to be ashamed and of, and in his suffering and in his earthly, temporal separation from his family. The last truth to help them in the suffering as we end chapter 4 is in verse 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should submit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. God is a faithful Creator. God creates, God gives life, God sustains and he's in 100% control. God keeps our inheritance in heaven for us, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. There's chapter 1. Peter, that's how Peter started his letter, encouraging the, the exile, and that's how he ends it as well. He ends by calling them back to this faithful creator who is still in control. Opposition to the gospel has not ceased. It's not going to cease. It will not be until Christ come again. So it is not if I suffer for Christ, but when I suffer for Christ, there is no one else except God who will sustain you and me. At this point in time, 1 Peter 4 may seem very theoretical, very academic to us. Because thank God we are not really suffering like my friend or any part, any other believers in Christ who are suffering for Christ. But I want to tell us that this passage prepare our hearts, prepare my hearts to, for the day that when I suffer for Christ. I pray. I pray that when I suffer for Christ, I will not back off but I will obey His will. I will lean in and trust that God cares, God is in control and God knows the pain because He Himself has experienced that suffering and that pain and this is the Lord, the God that you and I worship and as we do that, we look forward to that future glory that He promised us will come. So yes, our suffering will be temporal, will be short-lived. But yes, when we are going through it, it may seem long. But God promised that it will come to an end. And when that end comes, we're going to have eternal glory eternal life with God and God alone. So eternal, the imperishable versus perishable. Let's pray. The Lord, we thank you that we who live in this perishable world look forward to the imperishable, eternal life that we can have with you. And while here on this side of heaven, your word retell us warn us, remind us that we will suffer for Christ. But it's going to be temporal. Because you promise. You promise eternal life. You promise vindication, You promise that your grace is sufficient for us in our suffering. So, Lord, we pray. We cling on, we hold on to that. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world who are actually suffering, their life being threatened, I pray too that Lord, they will hold the letter of one Peter dear to their hearts. And they will cling on to this promise that God knows, God cares, and God is in control. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.